Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, it would have gone so perfectly where we'd planned it to go, but this is great. That was great. Um, welcome back, everyone. I hope that, as I said, you get a chance to share some of these stories, continue having these conversations with whoever you were speaking to uh, over coffee after our service. So if you have been with us since Christmas, you might be starting to sense a pattern in some of the scripture passages we're hearing each week. And if you haven't been, it's totally fine. Just imagine it like Top Gun 2. We make some callbacks, but you get the gist on its own. It stands pretty much by itself. These passages that we are working our way through are all from different gospels. Four books in our Bible telling us the stories of Jesus' life, but with different authors in different time periods, with different relationships with Jesus, with different political agendas. But what these stories that we are hearing this season have in common, so that's the baptism of Jesus, the calling of Jesus' first disciples, is that they are all situated at the very start, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Something big is changing. And if you were to pull out your calendar, you will see that it is a very short period of time between now and Good Friday, between now and the death of Jesus. In actuality, Jesus' ministry spanned about two to three years. That's our best guess. This is still a very short period of time. And our symbolic three months stands to remind us in this church season just how radical this man's ministry must have been for things to escalate as quickly as they did. So when you are in doubt that any of this matters, look at the timeline. This ministry was disruptive. This ministry was revolutionary to the detriment of Jesus' life. If the news if the news we hear in the Gospels does not sound revolutionary, we need to hear them again. And that is the uncomfortable place that I found myself this week. Remember, the season of Epiphany is not just about revealing the love of God. It's about shedding light on the ways of the world that are active forces against that love back in the first century and right here today. We are here to be on the lookout. So that's where we're picking up. We left off last week. Jesus has been baptized by John. And John has started to preach not that the Messiah, the anointed one, will come, but that he has come. He is come. He's here. And because of this, Jesus has started to gain a following. And as we listened this morning to that first sentence, we learned that Jesus has just heard that John the Baptist has been arrested. The scriptures allude that uh, John condemned some of Herod's personal relationships is the reason. But details aside, it is safe to say what we know about John is that he was preaching out against the powers that be. And it got him arrested. 
And our scripture doesn't tell us what is going through Jesus' mind when he discovers this. But what we do here, right here in this passage, is what Jesus does. Jesus begins. The Jesus as we know him begins here. He is so inspired by John's convictions, not only in God, but in him, in Jesus. John says, I have seen the Messiah with my own eyes. And Jesus is so encouraged, so emboldened to get up and change everything. That our passage says, from that time, Jesus began. This is one of only two times in our Gospels we hear this phrase, from that time. And both of those times, they are in reference to this very moment, the start of Jesus' ministry. This marks a very clear before moment and an after. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim and I sat with this passage this week and I flipped that over and over and over in my mind from that time. What is it that draws us into a new way of being so concretely as to say, from this time? That is a declaration of new life, if I've ever heard one. That is lived resurrection. In our Monday Night Spiritual Nurture series that I announced earlier, we're working our way through this John Philip Newell book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. And the entire book, the entire book is based on the belief that we know what is true. Our souls recognize what is true when we encounter it. Carl Jung argues that for us to recognize truth, there must be something within us that already knows it. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think that the arrest of John for speaking out against the empire spoke to this core truth of Jesus' purpose and ignited this moment of from that time, the before and the after. Modern psychology will tell us that in order for anything to change in our lives, at least for us to take agency in that change, there is such conviction required. We have to be so certain that we do not want things to remain the same, that we risk all of it. Jesus has heard something in John's preaching that is so powerful that his moment, his truth moment, has come. There is no waiting. There is no second guessing. There is no circumstantial excuses. There is no procrastination, queen of that. The time has come, and life is going to be different. I know that some of you here today have had that moment by your own choice or by something that has come upon your life, the birth of a child, the health scare, the travel experience that opened your eyes, the rock bottom, the unexpected loss. These are the big, the big, capital B, before and afters. These are the epiphany moments. It's what we're hearing here. But these are not the moments that make up a life. They change a life. And every day 
we are left to continue making choices about who we are, about who we are going to be, about the steps we are going to take. And this is where we falter as our very human selves in the incremental changes and motions and choices that make up an entire life. Remember, epiphany doesn't happen to us. It's something we practice. So I want to shift our eyes away from Jesus' moment from that time to the moment of the disciples in this passage that we're reading. Some of you, if you've been here since I started anyway, might remember that I have a tattoo on my wrist right here. And it is a version of this story. It is not the Matthew version of this story. The one on my wrist is from the book of Luke. Remember, these stories are all a little bit different. And Luke is such an interesting version of this story. Jesus calls the disciples and they respond with a phrase, because you say so, I will. That's what's tattooed here, B-Y-S-S-I-W. Because you say so, I will. But they utter that not only because Jesus has said so, but because they have seen Jesus do this. Jesus has already started his works of miracles in Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, the story is so different. It's so much more discreet. It's wilder. It's more raw. Simon, also known as Peter and Andrew, the brothers, are fishing. And Jesus simply shows up. That's all it tells us. Jesus shows up at their boat side and says, follow me. And our scripture says, and Frank read it so perfectly because he emphasized this word, our scripture says immediately, immediately they left their nets and followed him. A stranger beetles on over to your boat and says, follow me. And immediately you leave everything and follow him. I want you to imagine the kind of conviction it would take. For you to leave the life you currently have, all your loved ones, all your forms of security, your little tiny dog, your job, the house that you worked so hard to make a home. Leave it all to follow someone you just met who strolled on over to your boat and said, follow me. With a very elusive, I will make you fishers of people. What? Immediately, they followed him. I wouldn't, quite frankly, I love my little dog too much. Jesus could not pull me away. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine how true something would have to be to feel, to resonate with you? How real something would have to be? How radical to get you to leave all of this behind? So I was stumped. I was totally stumped on this this week. And it's one of my favorite passages. I could not fathom. For what would I leave all of it? So I turn to theologians and historians who have come before me, some of whom are much more well-versed than me, wise people, and I want to share what I learned with you. I listened to a great reflection by Rob Bell, and it changed this passage in entirety for me. So we are located... Here in Jesus' story, in the land of Galilee, that's northern Israel, this is a place of Judaism. The Jewish people Jesus was situated amongst believed that God had spoken to Moses and given him the first five books of our Hebrew Bible. That's what the Jewish people hold as the Torah. That's the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When young boys 
reached the age of about eight years old, they would go to school, all of them would go to school and study the Torah. And their task, their task was to memorize all five of those books, word for word. From the first sentence in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to the last sentence of Deuteronomy. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. They had it memorized. I didn't even have those two lines memorized. Did any of you grow up having to memorize scripture? Yeah, a couple of you. Some select verses. Maybe one entire book if you really wanted to challenge yourself and get the bonus sticky stars. It is hard. Eight years old. And so by the time these children were about 10, that concluded their Jewish education, their temple education. They were sent home to work in the trades of their families, to work the fields, to make the tables, to fish the lakes. But the top students, the best of the best, would be asked to stay on. They would move to the next level of study. And by the ages of 14 or 15, they would have memorized the rest of the Hebrew Bible all the way to the book of Malachi. And I don't know if you have a Bible in front of you, but my Bible, okay, this is getting embarrassing. I can't find the book of Malachi. Anyway, our Bible is about 1,600 pages. That's what this one says. Memorized, familiar with, intimately familiar with. That would be their task. And by the age of 14 or 15, when they completed this, they would either be sent home. That was it. To work the fields, build the tables, fish the lakes. Except the very best of the best. They would be asked to stay on. And this level was where you got to apprentice with, to learn from, to disciple, that was the word they used, to disciple with a rabbi. Can you imagine how excellent you would have to be in order to disciple with a rabbi 1,600 pages? And the rabbi's words, if you were dubbed to be, this excellent creme de la creme student, best of the best, the words they would invite you with were these. Come, follow me. Lech acharai. The words used to describe following one's rabbi were literally translated to mean walk after me. And there's a beautiful prayer that was uttered for all of these disciples, the best of the best. And that prayer was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Isn't that beautiful? But it was only the best of the best. So can you imagine you were sent home to work the fields, to build the tables, to fish the lakes, because you were not the best of the best. You were not. And one day, as you went about your ordinary work, a rabbi, that is what they call Jesus, a rabbi approaches you and says, through no doing of your own, lech acharai, 
follow me. That profession is something I would give everything for. Because you say so, I will. Because Jesus says, I am worthy of a different life. I will endeavor to live one. Because the Holy Spirit says that I am capable of forgiveness, I will open myself to it. Because the Christ says we can make a difference in the lives of the stranger, the lives of the poor, the lives of the marginalized, I will try. Because God says we can build the kingdom right here and now, I will open the toolbox. Because you say so, I will. That is radical. That it is not by our faith in Jesus that we are changed. But sometimes it is by Jesus' faith in us. What if the catalyst of change isn't you believing you can do it, but instead trusting that God has invited you to do it? Trust your prayers. Trust your intentions. Trust your heart. Trust your grief. Trust your doubt. Trust your changes. To God, we are each and every one of us called in to change. But we are not called as the best. We are called as the beloved. And that is worth laying our old lives down for and uttering to ourselves and to God and to everyone who will hear from this time on. May it be so. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.